Now, welcome to the CatTunes podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Crowley. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the stories behind my songs, the production tools that I've used, the production methods that I've employed, the instruments that I've played, the instruments that I've discovered, the arrangement methods that I've used, the real-life stories which precipitated the creation of my entire albums or of my separate tracks. So let's jump right into it, shall we? And uh, welcome you listening to the Cattoons podcast. This is episode 25. And this is me, your host, Kat Corelli, and today we're going to be talking about a song called Never, The Truth Is, from the Surfic Tears album. And it happens to be the 11th track on this album. So basically, it's like two tracks away from the end. Uh, so this is when emotions ramp up, you could say. They sort of rev up. And we're close to the climax of the album, the natural climax of the album. This song was written back in 2010, and it was one of the last tracks that joined uh, the Serious Pictures album. So, and there's a reason for this, both because I didn't have good ideas and I didn't know how far this album is going to take me. Originally, when I started sketching out Serious Tears back in 2008, 2009, around that time, but also because I needed first to live through my own story. If you were listening to the previous episodes where I was talking about this album specifically, you would know that Seraphic Tears is predicated not exactly on the myth about Lilith and Adam, but it is rather predicated on my experience of leaving out the Lilith archetype to a certain extent. So, apparently first I had to break up with my boyfriend, which I did in uh, 2009, in fall 2009. And then basically it happened so that I've leaped out of one hellish situation into an even worse situation. I think I've touched on this story on previous episodes, but just to, just to recap what actually happened. And what happened was that I walked out on my boyfriend, whom I loved, so it wasn't an easy thing to do, but I got really tired of fighting his alcoholic addiction, and there was a quote-unquote friend of mine, a girl, who helped me to get out of that relationship, but unfortunately it turned out that she had other plans for me, and it wasn't purely friendly, so she wanted, she wanted more than that, basically, and I was stuck with her for the following year and a half. I didn't want to be in that relationship. I didn't see myself as in a relationship, however, I didn't have any options and I wasn't able to leave because I had nowhere to live. So I had to play along, basically. And um, Never, the truth is, was written in fall 2010, so it was roughly a year after I've left my boyfriend. 
And uh, I was looking back at the time that I've had with my boyfriend, and um, it was a wild concoction of feelings because, on one hand, I felt that I've done the right thing. I felt that I absolutely had to walk away because I wasn't I wasn't going to sacrifice myself for nothing. I wasn't going to just ditch my my whole life for a man who did not appreciate me and did not appreciate everything that I was doing for him and all the love that I was giving to him. So I felt on one hand that I'm do- that I've done the right thing that I should have walked out on him and they'd have done that. Awesome. But on the other hand, I felt horrible because in 2010, I was living with that girl and she was determined to make a man out of me. And it didn't work. Apparently it didn't work. But she was insistent and persistent in the pursuit of that endeavor. I didn't like it. It was um, very difficult. I had health problems at that point. I lost four of my teeth. Uh, she kicked me off hormones, so it was a very rough ride, and uh, it was to to my own detriment. But I had no other way. I needed to live somewhere, so I was surviving, basically, and uh, I was in much pain for half a year. My head was ripped apart by constant headaches because once she kicked me off of my hormone replacement therapy, what started to happen is that my body became inflamed. My hormone balance went to hell, my immune system was crippled, so all of my weak spots, everything that was not okay started to show. In the span of just half a year, I've lost four of my teeth. And um, the pain was excruciating. Um, I didn't want to see any doctors because I didn't want to deal with being misgendered. And uh, unfortunately, at that time, I had my old uh, male passport and I didn't want to get myself into that. Apparently, that girl, she would be happy to drag me through that because she was so eager to make a man out of me. But I despise the very idea of being treated by doctors as a guy. I didn't want that. I, I couldn't handle it. So I suffered through that pain. I was taking painkillers for half a year. Everything, ever since she kicked me off those hormones, um, which at that point I was taking for already for three, almost four years, everything in my body went sideways. My wounds wouldn't heal, you know, the tiniest of scratches, like from a cat or a dog, something like that. The, the tiniest scratch wouldn't heal properly because I was basically so screwed up. And um, I was having those headaches because my teeth uh, were... I was having a tooth problem. And I was taking painkillers. But the painkillers didn't help because the pain, uh, the pain was increasing all the time. It was a horrible situation, and looking back, I think perhaps I could have handled it a lot better, and perhaps I could have been stronger, perhaps I could have told her to basically just, you know, F off, and maybe I could have taken to the streets or something like that and then found a different solution. I don't know. 
There always could have been something else, but at the time, it was what it was. I broke up with my boyfriend, and while I was crippled for roughly four months, I, I had to deal with him because he was trying to get me back, so it, uh, it went all the way to the cops. I was forced to go and report him to the cops and ask for help, and that was a whole story in itself. It was not easy. It wasn't like I just walked out on him and it was over. No, it wasn't. It dragged for another four months with him trying to uh, call me on my phone numbers and I had to basically change my phone number every, uh, every week, sometimes twice every week. He was threatening my friends at some point and that was a problem. So that was dragging on and dragging on. While I was preoccupied with that uh, fallout with my boyfriend, with my ex-boyfriend, this girl, she was plotting behind my back. She was talking to uh, my acquaintances, to my people. She was impersonating me online. She was sending out text messages. She was making phone calls and she turned away a lot of people from me. And then I couldn't find those people or they wouldn't talk to me. And so she basically left me cornered and without um, a sufficient way, a sufficient route for escape. She didn't want me to leave. She didn't want me to find another place to live. She didn't want me to, you know, rent on my own. And I was earning money, mind you. It wasn't like I was not earning any money. I was actually earning money. I had my students, I had my private practice, and I was the main breadwinner. But she didn't want me to live anywhere else. Um, the reason why I could not rent myself and the place that we rented was rented in her name was because I was incongruent with my own documents because my passport said that I'm male and the photograph was outdated and the name that was in the passport was basically my dead name. Um, but I myself didn't look like my passport at all because for three years I was taking hormones. I was passable as a girl, but I was not passable as my own passport. So, he, living in Moscow, renting in my name, myself, was practically impossible because any uh, landlord wouldn't want to deal with me because, well, because of the mentality of Russians and, um, you know, landowners would be mostly uh, people in their 50s, 60s, etc., etc. 40s, you know, okay, 40s, 50s, 60s. But to find something was insanely difficult. I wasn't able to pull it off myself. Hence, that's why this girl went in and she capitalized on this weakness that I had. Um, she capitalized on the fact that I was not able really to rent myself at that point. Not that I didn't have any money, but it was technically very difficult. You get the point. So it was a hellish time. I was going through severe pain for roughly half a year. I was singing with that pain. I was living with that pain. Every day I was sleeping, I was eating with that pain. It was, ex it was excruciating headaches, uh, toothaches. And it's basically like all the time, all you feel is that your, your skull is being pulled apart as if someone put their claws into your temples and is trying to rip your skull apart. Uh, and by the way, through that pain, 
I've recorded the entire Killed Alive album. The Killed Alive classic album was recorded through that pain, with all of that pain, which was extremely difficult because every time that I would try to sing or scream or something like that, the pain would increase tenfold. It, it was difficult to move my jaw. It was difficult to open my mouth. And when you start singing or screaming, the blood circulation increases and it becomes a lot more painful. So some songs on the Seraphic Tears album, like Never, for example, was recorded through that pain too. It was in fall 2010. At that time, I was already working on the Kill the Live album, Kill the Live classic, uh, but I was also wrapping up the Seraphic Tears album, and I needed those tracks. So never, despite on, despite on the surface it might seem like it's a very calm and serene and uh, um, quiet song, was not calm at all when I was recording it. I was singing through a lot of pain, and uh, basically the song is about me looking back at my then already ex-boyfriend, recalling all the good stuff that we had together, all the fun that we had together, all the wild, passionate stuff that was going on between us, and feeling through it, and feeling out what does it feel like to have that time gone completely, irreversibly. And now me being here, in a situation that I could have never imagined I would land in. Just a year before Never was written, despite all the difficulties, despite all the issues and problems that we've had with my boyfriend because of his alcoholism, I was happy at least to a certain extent. At least I was, at least I was with a man whom I loved. At least there was passion. Yes, it wasn't perfect. Yes, it was wild at times. And yes, it was painful and hurtful it's sometimes. But there was something to it. And now here I am. In 2010. In fall 2010. And I am basically destroyed. And I don't know how am I supposed to dig myself out of this situation. It hurts. Not only emotionally. But it also hurts physically. And it hurts tremendously. So, uh, the entire song, Never, the truth is, basically consists of just two lines which are being sung in uh, different combinations. The lyrics say, you'll never come to me, you'll never come to me, and I will never ever come to you. And it repeats itself, there is the, you know, the second verse is the repetition of the first one, and then there is a third verse, again it's the repetition of the same stuff, and then you have I'll never come to you, you'll never come to me, to me, to you, to me, to you, you'll never, never, and ever, never come. So you see, in the context of the story that I told you about how did I break up with my, with my boyfriend and where did I land, most importantly, you might understand why I've written this song. And you might also understand why it occupies the very last page of the Seraphic Tears album. It's right before the end. It's a song about longing, it's a song about missing someone 
but also knowing that there is no way back at all. There is no way that you can meet again. There is no way that you can have the same stuff that you've had. There is no way to resurrect that. It can't be done. And that's why he will never come to me and I will never come to him. It's impossible. Now, on the album, the track Never The Truth Is sits before Adieu, Coherence Dissolution and Third Night. So, from the previous episodes, you might remember that following the logic of the album, Adieu is the breaking point when Lilith decides to fly away. This is when she uh, acquires her freedom, and then Third Night, the last track, would be when she uh, when she basically just flies free, and it's just an assertion of her freedom at that point. In the context of the album, and according to the logic of the album, never happens first with its message. It happens first, and then you have Adieu, Coherence, Dissolution, and Third Night, Free with Sun and Moon. But in reality, uh, the way my real-life story unfolded, it was first Adieu, Coherence, Dissolution, you could say, then it was Third Night, Free with Sun and Moon, and then, in the very end, it was never the truth is. However, I thought when I was putting together the Circuit Tears album, I thought that it would make a lot more sense to have Never sitting before those two tracks, not after them. I thought that it wouldn't be that good of an idea to conclude the entire album with Never. You see basically what I'm saying. So in real life it played out one way, and then when it went into the album, I had to move things around a little bit so that I could deliver the broader message so that I could deliver it in a more cohesive and emotionally impactful manner. That's what I was aiming for. So, now that we've talked a little bit about the premise for the song and where did it come from, let's get to the musical analysis of it, shall we? Never the truth is, is in the key of B flat, major or minor, depending on how do you see it, or rather, it fluctuates between major and minor all the time, and that's sort of part of the point. It starts out with some African-esque percussion, and before we dive into this, I gotta uh, tell you a little story. Uh, back in the day, when the classic version of uh, Never the Truth is was written in fall 2010, I didn't have any percussion at all, and I was heavily into uh, into a video game that was called Severance Blade of Darkness. And there was that wonderful loop from that, that ambient loop from that video game, which sort of sat with me and that's how I felt about things. So I've sampled that loop for the classic version, but then this year, when it came to releasing both versions of the album, the classic and the modern, on the modern, obviously, I just played the percussion, but 
on the classic, I had to do something about it because I couldn't just release it with that loop that was sampled from the video game because I would violate copyrights. So I had to replace it and advised my husband to write out uh, something in the style of what was there in the old original, which he did. So, uh, anyways, the song starts with an intro and it's just percussions, it's just a very tribal sort of rhythm, tribal groove that builds up and it builds up and it builds up uh, throughout the song and um, the little peculiarity about this track specifically is that the tempo actually changes. It escalates slightly. It was quite challenging when I had to re-record it when I was working on the modern version because I had to match up, I had to find out the starting point for the original BPM and then I had to find where did the BPM, how far did it go, how much did it escalate, I had to calculate that and then I basically had to just match up with that while playing uh, percussions live and I was recording track after track after track so I had a tom on one track and then I had a kick on the other track and then I had another tom on another track and they were playing different parts and then I was then I had to mix it and line it up all together so that was pretty challenging but it's a very subliminal very subtle change that uh, moves that, that gives some extra motion to this song because generally speaking this song is pretty serene pretty calm and it almost sounds like it's a folk song because of uh, well because of its uh, melodic and um, harmonic structure. So after the intro we're immediately going into the verse. So we're in B flat, minor or major, it depends. And this uh, every new verse starts with a B flat major. how it changes right away. You'll never come to me. And then it goes, utilizes a D flat. So let me play separately the, the chord progression and then you will get well, what am I talking about. You'll never come to me. You see what happens? We're starting only the first chord in this sequence is a major chord. It's a B flat major. But then after that, we're going immediately. We're acting as if all of a sudden we're in uh, B flat minor, not B flat major. So the next chord is an E flat minor minus seven. Then we're going into a C minor minus seven. G flat uh, major plus seven, then D flat major plus seven. Again, G flat major plus seven, 
F major minus 7 and back to uh, B flat. And by the way, when we're landing here, it is not really immediately obvious are we arriving into a, a minor key or a major key, because none of the voices usually indicates this, unless on the third uh, verse you have this When the vocal does that, that's when you know that there is a minor, um, a tint of minor to this key, and that, that's when you know that it is minor. But then it immediately shifts in the beginning of the next sequence again back to B flat uh, major. same chord sequence lasts, it's, it spins and it spins three times, three times because there are three verses, and over the span of these three repetitions, three verses, which are lyrically exactly the same and melodically basically the same, the only thing that changes is that the, uh, the color of the vocal intensifies, so vocally you have more and more intensity, you have a build-up, basically. Uh, the percussion in the back is growing and building and there's just more and more stuff going on. And in the modern version, there is also an Armenian duduk, uh, which plays its own thing, um, sort of like a, an additional voicing to the vocal somewhere in between, and sort of supports it sometimes, sometimes just floats off and then comes back, uh, sometimes in a pretty chaotic fashion. And um, then when it, when it reaches its highest point and a crescendo, then in the very end, uh, the last words, um, you could say the outro of the song, is just like fragments, bits and pieces that repeat the same lyrics that were already introduced to us in the first three verses. So it's... To me and to you To me and to you You So it's basically it's like an afterthought, an afterfeel of everything, and it, it fluctuates sometimes between the voicing moves into a D and then it slips into a D flat. So the, the color of this outro is somewhat ambiguous. It floats between a major and a minor key, and that creates this uncertainty. We don't know. We don't know, the listener, right? We don't know. Are we happy about this or are we sort of sad? It is nostalgic and it is melancholic, it is resentful and it is and it has a sense of relief. So ultimately, never, the truth is, sits somewhere in between. It's not decisively uh, a positive track which you know concludes everything and we're happy to move on. No, it isn't that. It has a good element of sadness to it because it's still 
it has a great deal of nostalgia to it. And this is expressed exactly in, in moves like this, in motions like this, because when you have a major um, root chord, B flat major, and then you hear this third, a D, that all of a sudden slips into a D flat. You see what happens? Here's a little trick. After we're slipping down with this first three chords, right, down to D minor, uh, down to C minor, then this move, this motion, sounds like a big move, and it has an emotional punch to it. Why? Well, musically, because you have a tritone right here. It's a tritone move, motion. You're going from a C, you're going up to a G flat. Then it sort of smoothens out again because we're going into a D flat major plus seven, and again back to a G flat major plus seven. And then here's the dominant uh, F major minus seven. And from there we just hop off into the root chord. But the root chord is ambiguous. You don't know if it's a major or a minor, and it's not immediately obvious in the first two verses even. Where, where do we land? It's emphasized in the on the last uh, verse that it is through this little subtle variation in the melody. It is uh, emphasized that it is minor, but then it sort of shifts again back to a major, and then it shifts back to a minor, and it's uh, it happens basically in the span of just two bars, two bars in minor and then two bars in major, and the percussion slowly dies off and everything fades and the vocal just floats for a little bit more with the same lyrics, with bits and pieces of the same lyrics, and that's how the song ends. It is deliberately written in a very simple fashion. There is deliberately no other lyrics. It is just it. You'll never come to me, you'll never come to me, and I will never ever come to you. That's the whole song, basically. There is nothing else that needs to be said. I was trying to put a lot of focus uh, on the music, on the emotional intricacies, on the emotional subtle tints and flavors of the music, on that emotion that is being conveyed through these lyrics. And um, the way I saw it when I was writing this song is that you don't really need any extravagant lyrics when you have music like this. And it is, um, it is a very specific emotion. And... Uh, I was trying to put all of that focus to shift it from lyrics to the music. Yes, the lyrics, they are like a simple vehicle for complex emotions. And that is why uh, Never the Truth Is is such, a, is such a peculiar thing. It's basically almost like a folk song. Even simpler. Nothing else to it.
So with that being said, this is basically the entire music analysis for this track, and let's move on to the next segment, shall we? So, now that we are done with the musical analysis, let me reiterate once again. The real-life story, the way it played out, would have uh, a geo, basically my breakup, my breaking point with my ex-boyfriend, would have it first, and then never would be like the conclusive last, last thing that would happen, right? It would be the conclusive last chapter. But on the album, I have never that happens first, then there is a geo. So there is a sense, never is also in part on the album, it is not the last track, because there is an element of anticipation. I've talked a little bit about this when I was talking about AMG's HR Giger Erotic Mechanics 9 Fellation, the, pre the previous episode where I was talking about that there was an element of anticipation the feeling that there is like impending doom that is that is looming on the horizon and um, in AMG's I was just leaping into that passionate whirlwind of emotion and um, losing myself in it but already feeling that this is going to be over that this is nearing an end Never, the truth is, the reason why, also another reason why it is uh, placed not in the end of the album, but right after AMG's, is because in the context of the album it also means, it emphasizes this element of anticipation. On Never, the truth is, there is already a feeling of that I am gone. I didn't break up yet, but I am already gone, because I'm gone in my thoughts. I'm gone in my emotions. In my heart, I've already, I already intend to move on. Therefore, it makes sense on the album to have never, the truth is, before I do, which is the breaking point. You get the picture. So, um, this is where I'm gonna be wrapping up this episode. Guys, thank you very much for tuning in and uh, checking out my podcast. In case you haven't heard any of my music at all yet, simply look for Catherine Corelli, Catherine with a C, Corelli with a C, on any platform of your choice, because my music is distributed basically to all major platforms. You can find me on Spotify, you can find me on iTunes or Apple Music, wherever you prefer to consume music. You can even find me on YouTube. My music should be on YouTube. And more than that, I also have a couple of different shows there. One is called Cat Talk, where I talk about a variety of uh, issues, mostly political and social issues, uh, which are not related to music. And then, and then the other show that I have on YouTube is called Cat Vibes, and it's basically just a playlist of videos from my everyday life pertaining to my music activities or any other activities basically so if you want to if you want to learn more about me you can just look me up Catherine Corelli Catherine with a C Corelli with a C 
If you have any questions about this podcast or you have any comments that you would love to leave to me, and it, you know, especially if it's a lengthy comment and you want to express yourself fully, you can reach out to me at ladycatherinecorelli at gmail.com. It is ladycatherinecorelli at gmail.com, and we can have a conversation. Also, too, if you want to find some of my merch or my other products like Caracol Soap, for example, simply go to my website, catcorelli.us. It is catcorelli.us. I, I have the link to my website right here in the description to, to every episode. And check out my merch store. I got common merch, like I got a sticker for $5 or more, and I got guitar picks, and uh, also... Most importantly, I've got a variety of soaps, handcrafted soaps, which are uh, good for your skin, good for your health. Uh, Some of them are aromatherapy soaps and others are focused on skincare. So if you want to support this show, you can do it directly right here or you can go and buy some of my products either on my website, catcorelli.us, or you can also find my merch on Teespring. Cat Corelli t-shirts, coffee cups, etc, etc. So, thank you very much, guys, for spending your time with me. I appreciate you following this podcast, and thank you for all the plays. Uh, If you like the podcast, don't forget to share it. And uh, I love you all, and you'll hear me on the next episode.